Well, we've had a great time this week, haven't we? Amen. I love Glendon. I love Glendon. I'll fight for Glendon. I love him. He's a great man of God. Rick, what a sermon tonight. That was great, wasn't it? That was great. Let me just say a few things. I have returned to evangelism after being the president of a seminary. Many years I was evangelist, and uh, now I'm back. I've had people come up to me. I guess they think I'm some sort of big shot. Would you come to my church? I'll come to any size church, small or large, on one condition. You really want to see a move of God. I've turned down large churches that just wanted to have a spasm. Now, if you want to have a move of God, I'll come. I've preached to churches. I preached at one, uh, there were three people there. After I left, they split. But <laughs> that's the truth. And then I preached at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. So you're somewhere in between there. My wife is here. I don't know if you've ever seen my wife, and I don't want her to stand up a minute. Stand up a minute, Marilyn. Come on, stand up. That's my wife. My crusade coordinator, Cindy James, is here somewhere. Where are you at, Cindy? Stand up way back there. And my minister of music, Gary Miller, I don't know whether he made it or not. Gary, are you here? Raise your hand. We've got our team back together. Gary and I back when we were traveling. We have now a 4,000-seat tent, but we held more crusades than any team in America, but we've gone to small churches as well as large ones. You pray for me. I'm back in evangelism. And I love it, and, but I want to see a move of God. That answered that request. Now, I've had a lot of requests, am I going to sing? I don't sing much anymore. I did, however, lead J.D. Sumner to the Lord. How many of you remember J.D. Sumner? Raise your hand. J.D. Sumner and the Stamps Quartet, they backed up Elvis the last seven years, and Nick Bruno was piano player for the Stamps. He came to hear me preach one day. J.D. did, and after the service, I said, J.D., did you ever get saved? He said, my brother's Church of God preacher. I said, I don't care if your brother's the Pope. A man that can drink two-fifths of liquor every day and not be bothered about it's lost and going to hell. And I said, if you don't get saved right now, when you die, I'm going to fly to your service, laugh all the way through it, spit on your grave, and say they buried a fool. He called me two weeks later from Paducah, Kentucky, crying, said, I've just gotten off my knees. I just got saved. I poured all my liquor down the commode here. They won't need to use Drano for six months. <laughs> he called me two or three weeks later, and he said, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, when we go into a town on a bus for these 35 years I've been singing with the Blackwood Brothers or the Stamps, I look for the nearest package store. And then I send somebody with a $10 bill to buy me a fifth of liquor. I don't even want to look anymore. But he said, two weeks ago, the Spirit of God gave me the answer. He said, J.D., every time you're tempted to buy liquor, send the $10 to Harold Hunter because he led you to the Lord. I said, J.D., you need to listen to God now. <laughs> I was in a big crusade, Rick. He came in with a box under his arm. He had, I always wear Western boots. He had a patent leather burgundy pair of western boots made by Elvis's bootmaker. You could that thing that'd have cost three thousand dollars, I guess. He said, These are your liquor boots. 
But he always wanted me to sing. Sometimes I'd sing. Well, I'm going to sing one verse. It's a, Nick, come on up here. <laughs> You've already sung it. How many of you ever went to an all-night singing where the flies were flying, the sweats were rolling, having a good time? Raise your hand. Well, he'd always want me to sing this song, and it's got, and he wanted me to sing it with a long note in it. And if I can, I don't do this anymore, but I've sung it all over America with J.D. Now, if I sing it and hold that note, you got time to go to McDonald's and get your burger and come on back. <laughs> if I don't, call a doctor. <laughs> and I'm too old to get embarrassed now. now you better get that in B flat, all right? <laughs> Just imagine you're an all night singing. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy displayed then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings Thank you. <clears throat> now tonight, <laughs> buy your tickets. <laughs> Nick and I'll be at McDonald's on Friday night. I leaned over and I told your pastor a while ago, I've had a burden about this service all day long. I've preached in a lot of conferences. I've never experienced exactly what I've experienced today. I, I'm, I have a heavy heart that there is somebody that I write with God, and this is your night. Ordinarily, I preach with a lot of humor. 
But I think when you're trying to keep somebody from making the worst mistake they've ever made, it's not really all that humorous. So there's not a lot of humor here, but I want you to take your Bible, and I'm going to be going all through the Bible tonight, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Now, do you have your Bible in your hand? Look at me. The only hope that you've got of getting out of that grave if you die is that this book is telling you the truth. The only hope that you have of ever seeing your loved ones again who've already died is that this book is true. I want you to hold that book in your hand. My allegiance as far as this world is concerned is to that book. I love this book. I kiss this book. I caress this book. This is the only hope I've got. I don't have any other hopes. I was being interviewed on television on one occasion, and there was a psychologist, a sociologist there. There was a liberal theologian there. And there was a sociologist there, and they were all saying basically the same thing. The Bible has no relevancy for this modern age. It is a book 2,000 years old, and we can ascribe all sorts of fantastic stories and lessons and illustrations from it, and we can learn from it, but it really has no relevancy because it's an old book. Tonight, I'm going to begin my message by showing you it is relevant to today because I'm going to show you something perhaps you've never seen before. I'm going to just very briefly talk about Russia, North Korea, and Syria in biblical prophecy. Is that as modern as today's newspaper? Have you noticed President Trump is about to have a meeting with John Ung of North Korea? Have you noticed that? If I can show you in the Word of God that the Bible does discuss North Korea, would you then be impressed that it does have some relevancy? I want you to look at Genesis chapter 6. This is a very important passage of Scripture. And I want you to follow with me because it's, it is the Word of God. And the Word of God is true. It cannot lie. And I want you to follow with me. Rather, turn with me. I'm going to, I'm going to shorten my sermon. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Let me start there for brevity of time. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Now look at me. Everybody in this room has DNA that takes them back to chapter 10, verse 1 of the book of Genesis. Your grandpa, your great-grandpa was either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Everybody that lives in this world comes from one of those three. Let's move ahead. The Bible says the sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, and Madia and Javan and Tubal. Now look at this, Meshach and Tyrus. Did you know Magog, Madia, Javan and Tubal, Meshach and Tyrus? Did you notice that? Now hold your finger where it is and turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. Now I'm just briefly going to Ezekiel chapter 38. We're going to come back there briefly in a little while. 
Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 1 says, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. Underline that word Magog. We've just seen it in verse 1 of chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. We've just seen that verse. Now go back to verse 1 of chapter 10. Now these are the generation of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan. Please underline Javan. Underline Javan. The peoples of Javan for scores and scores of years by theologians and anthropologists and historians have said that their descendants went down into Asia Minor and Greece, and I believe that. But we have recently discovered that a portion of them lived in what is now the easternmost part of Russia, the easternmost part of what we call Siberia, just north of China. Continue reading. And the Bible says this in verse 3, And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz. Would you underline the word Ashkenaz? All right, are you listening? Say we're listening. I know this is not a preachy-like sermon. You already got that or you get my tape. I had a little boy one time when I was preaching in Norfolk, Virginia, a crusade. On the second night, he came into the convention. He said, he's about 10 years old. He said, are you the guy that's going to preach tonight? And I said, yeah. He said, are you really going to preach or are you going to tell us something? <laughs> well, I'm trying to tell you something. Would you underline Ashkenaz? All right, are you ready? Say we're ready. I'm going to show you something historically. Javan is the father of modern Korea. Now, Korea it was not originally, it's a peninsula that wasn't originally split into North Korea and South Korea, just the Korean peninsula. Ashkenaz, historically by the ancient documents, his name is not Ashkenaz, but Chin, C-H-I-N. Chin and Javan and their descendants moved into the central part of what is now modern China. They moved to a town that was known as Kosin, C-O-S-I-N. And economic depression began to get horrible. So Javan decided, we can't live here anymore. We, we're going to starve to death. So he took his people. Are you listening? Say, we're listening. Are you ready? I got your seatbelt buckled. And they moved their people to a community in what is now North Korea. Now, what known as North Korea, but he moved it into the peninsula in the north part of what is now known as Korea. And guess what they call the town? If we anglicized it from the Asiatic languages and we anglicized it, it would come out as C-H-O-R-I-A, anglicize it further, K-O-R-I-A, anglicize it a little further, K-O-R-E-A, that's where it came from. Okay, are you, listen. Listen as much as you would if I told you a joke. Will you do that? Come on, listen to me. What relevancy does that have to us? 
Because in ancient writings, in ancient writings, if anybody used the term potentates of the East or emperors of the East or monarchs of the East or kings of the East, everybody who read those writings knew exactly who they were talking about they were talking about the people of Javan in what is now known Korea and the people of Chin who are now in China. Is that anywhere in the Bible? Yes. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. When you got it, say, I got it. In verse 12, the Bible says... And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way, what's that next phrase? Kings of the east, say it with me. Kings of the east, say it again. Kings of the east. Who are the kings of the east? Javan and Chin, Korea and China. And one of these days, they're going to join forces and they're going to come against Israel. How do we know that? Turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Remember, we just saw that in Revelation 16. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now, if we've got 7 billion people on planet Earth, that means that this army under Javan and Chen, that is under the Koreans and the Chinese, are going to destroy a third of mankind. Basically, two and a half billion people are going to be destroyed. Verse 16, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, 200 million. And people look at that and scoff. Ah, they can't be an army of 200 million. Oh, Really? Really? There can't be an army of 200, really. China has a greater population by far than that of the United States. We don't have 400 million people. Do you know what the population of China is? Just China alone, don't even count Korea. 1.4 billion. China has a billion more people than we have. Do you know what our intelligence sources said the other day? China, right now today, look it up. They have the largest army in the world, active army of 2.4 million people. But they also went ahead to say this. Their reserves are 250 million people that can go to war. Is the Bible relevant? Everybody laughed. Can't be 200 million people. Who ever heard of that? Can't be an army that big. We already have in reserve, military reserves in China, an army of 215 million people. You can laugh at this book if you want to. 
But the Word of God says this. Verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And I think he's talking about war machines. And them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and jaceth and brimstone. Verse 18, By these three were a third part of men killed. We've already seen that. By the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone. Look at verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of their works of their hands that they should not worship devils. Verse 21, neither repented they of their murders. They wouldn't repent. They had it all figured out. I'm going to tell you something. I really honestly hope, President Trump, I really honestly with all my heart, I pray that he'll be able to resolve this with that tyrant over North Korea. But I'm going to tell you, even if he does, it's going to be a band-aid because Revelation 16 and Revelation 9 says already that there's coming a day that Korea and China are coming against Israel with a 215 million man army. What's that got to do with me, you say? What's that going to do with me? Because the Bible said they don't repent. I don't understand How could it be? You see a third of the world population, you still don't repent. Why don't they do it? Hey, I want to show you something in the Bible that I think is the best soul winning approach I've ever seen. And I'm almost positive none of you preachers have ever seen it. Would you like to see it? Would you really like to see it? Would you really like to see it? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah, you know what I like about being the last preacher on the last night of a Bible conference? I can preach as long as I want to. It won't hurt tomorrow night's crowd. It won't hurt tomorrow night's crowd. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. All right, man, how many preachers we got here? Raise your hand if you're a preacher. Whatever you do, you need to underline this. You need to use it. I've led people to the Lord since I discovered it. I've led people to the Lord. Look at verse 26. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in the time of trouble. Now let me just say, put all this together. They were looking at stones. They were looking at things that they were making idols. Now watch this. You know what God said? You are walking away from me. You're walking away from me because you love your idols. But you keep looking back. Did you know it says their backs are to me, but they're facing me. Did you notice that? They're walking this way, but they're looking back. Make sure God's still there. They're looking up, but they're making sure God's still there. And God said this, when your time of trouble comes, your gods, can they help you? Now let me bring it down. I know Rick won't mind if I use him. Forget about God a minute. I know you love God with all your heart. What's the greatest treasure you've got on this earth? I bet it's your family, isn't it? It's his family. Look at me. The Bible says when Rick's time of trouble comes, 
If that's all Rick's got is his family that he loves and adores. When his time of trouble comes, you know what that time of trouble is? You look at it in the Hebrew, it's when he dies and he's lying on his deathbed. You love your wife, don't you? But she won't be able to help you. Your children won't be able to help you. God said, look at them. When your time of trouble comes, when you're on your deathbed, those things you love more than me, they're not going to be able to help you. Next time you're talking to a businessman, he doesn't need God, ask him. When you die, when you're lying on your deathbed, you don't need God? What do you like? What do you really like? He may say, my business. Sir, your business is not going to help you on your deathbed. Well, I love my children. Your children are going to be able to help you on your deathbed. And you better quit treating God like some automobile valet and you're walking after all these pleasures and comforts of this world and just looking around just hoping God's still there to take care of you if things go bad. Do you know why? We had the terrible day, September 11th, when those twin towers went down and 3,000 people. I'll tell you why. Do you know why we're having these shootings all over America and children are being killed in school? I'll tell you why. We told God, leave us alone. You can't have it both ways. If you kick God out the door, quit looking over your shoulder hoping that God's going to take care of stuff when you get in a problem. Now let's look at the Syrians. The Bible talks about the Syrians. And I want you to turn with me, if you will, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Turn there, if you will, please. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to get you out all right. Don't you worry about it. And look at verse 8. The Lord sent a word into Jacob... And it is lighted upon Israel and all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in their pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up adversaries of resin against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before, they're going to lead it at the end of time. And the Philistines behind and they shall devour Israel. By the way, are you listening? There is a direct link historically between the Philistines of Isaiah chapter 9 mentioned here and the Palestinians on the west bank of Israel that want to destroy them. The same enemy. Is the Bible relevant? Come on, folks. Is it relevant? Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south, the king of the south historically, make this note, were the dark-skinned Arabs found in Syria. So in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, when he talks about the king of the south, it's talking about Syria. They shall push him and the king of the north. The king of the north is mentioned here 
are what we call the European countries. And they're going to get Israel in a squeeze. Now, if you've gotten glazed over, I want you to really watch this. In verse 41, are you listening? If your wife's gone to sleep, punch her. Say, honey, you need to hear this. He shall enter also into the glorious land. Would you circle that word, enter? You know what that word actually is? Surreptitiously enter. Sneak in. Illegally come into the country. And if you think I'm preaching a political sermon, you're dead wrong. This is a Bible sermon. What am I saying? They had an immigration problem back then. Because Syria, in order to destroy Israel, is sending some people surreptitiously, hidden, secretly, camouflaged into the country. And look at what it says in Daniel chapter 11. He shall enter also into the country, into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. He shall stretch forth his hand, 42 upon the countries, and even the land of Egypt shall not escape. So we've seen North Korea, we've seen Syria. What about Russia? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 38. The book of Ezekiel chapter 38. Start at verse 1. And the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Meshach and Tubal. Everybody take your pencil. Got your pencil? Have you got your pencil? Wave at me. You got your pencil. Circle the word Meshach. It is the ancient word for Moscow. Against Meshach and Tubal. Tubal is the word. Look, I was born in 1945 when I was a 7th or 8th grader in a geographical map of the world. Do you know that area that we now call Siberia? They called it Tobolsk, T-O-B-O-L-S-K. Anybody here my age remember that? That's Tubal. Chief Prince is the word Rusia, R-U-C-I-A. It's the word we get Russian from. And he says, I will turn thee back, verse 4. Verse 6, Gomer and all his, look at all, verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, with them all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togemar. There is one country that's not mentioned there. Look at me. Now, watch it. You'd miss it if you didn't get it. There's one country. You got Libya there. You got all these other countries. Do you know who the arch enemy of Israel was all the way through the Old Testament? It was Egypt. Isn't it strange? Egypt is not even mentioned here. Guess what? Egypt is the only one of the Arab countries today that has a truce with Israel. Verse 8, after many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years, underline it. In the latter years means at the end of time. Verse 11, thou shalt go up to the land of unwalled cities. That's one of the reasons we know it's the end of time. I've been to Israel many times. All of the little villages over there at one time had a wall around it. That was the last line of defense. The only city in Israel that has a wall is Jerusalem, and basically that's for decorative purposes. A wall cannot withstand the military might that we have in our day. 
It's an unwalled country. Look, they're going to go up against an unwalled country. And look what the Bible says, and I got to hurry along. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and all the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof. You know what that means? Look at me, look at me. If there is a mention of the United States in the Word of God, it's right here. Tarshish was the land starting at Greece along the northern Mediterranean Sea, down under the Straits of Gibraltar, up along Normandy, and including the British Isles. The young lions of Tarshish. What is the emblem of England? It's a lion. The young lions are the colonies. And when this great army comes against Israel, what does the Bible say they're going to do? They're going to say, let's talk about it. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Isn't that basically what we try to do with our enemies? Somebody asked me one time, said, is this the battle of Armageddon? It is not the battle of Armageddon. How do you know it's not the battle of Armageddon? I don't have time to show you. You read the rest of the chapter. It's going to be ended by a great earthquake. God's going to destroy that army with a great earthquake. It's going to be so bad, and the deaths are going to be so bad by the enemy here that they're going to be destroyed. It's going to take seven months for them to clean it up. And going through, they'll have to hold their noses because of the stench. You're going to be destroyed by an earthquake. I got news for you. Man, I could be a charismatic off of this. At the battle of Armageddon, ain't going to be no earthquake. It's not going to be a lightning bolt. It's going to be a sword that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. You say, what's that got to do with me? Look at me. Haven't I just shown you the Bible is relevant? Haven't I just shown you the Bible is relevant? Do you believe that what is described on these pages that I've shared with you, do you really believe it's going to take place? And here's the ultimate question. What about you? What he says about you, is it going to take place? Is it going to take place? Well, what does he say about me? Hebrews 9, 27. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that judgment. If Jesus doesn't come, we're going to die. You're going to die. Every person in this building is going to die. You're going to have to face God. Vic, I shared with him the other morning one of the most compelling things that I've heard. Some of you weren't here, I'm going to tell you. I had a contact some time back from a man who was a preacher who attended every session last year of this meeting. You know where he is tonight? In a jail. For child molestation. He thought he could get away with it. Sat where you sit. You know what he said to me? He said, I had just a little small sin in my life. I didn't deal with it. I didn't deal with that little small sin. Such a small sin that you would laugh at it if you know about it. 
But that little small sin became a seed and became a bigger sin and a bigger sin and a bigger sin. And finally, the Bible was fulfilled in Romans 8, 26. And when the Bible says, you want vile affections, you do that. God gave him up to vile affections. He said, I'd never had a thought about molesting a child. And then the day came that that's all I thought about. God had given him up. I'm going to tell you something, dear brother, dear sister. Is the Bible relevant? If it speaks truth about North Korea and Russia and Syria, anything it says about you. Let's suppose that you walk out of here tonight and you're not saved. No, but I've done everything in the church. We had our big 4,000 seat tent upon the eastern shore of Virginia. And in the choir was a woman that had been married to the most popular preacher in that area, a Southern Baptist preacher for 63 years. She was 91 years old. And she came down on Tuesday night and said, I need to get saved. And I was shocked. She said, I knew my whole married life that I wasn't right with God, but my husband would have been embarrassed if I had admitted it. Here was a woman ready to die and go to hell. I get news for you. It doesn't matter who you embarrass. You better not go to hell. Let's just imagine somebody's in here tonight. And I want you to think about you as a preacher, staff member. You're walking out of here tonight. You clasp your heart. You land on the floor. You begin to gasp for breath. You die. By the time we can get your body down to the hospital and it transported to the morgue, your body is going to be exactly where the rich man was in Luke chapter 16. Would you turn there, please, just a minute? Verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Look at me. That is an obituary that could be made about anybody in this building. Tomorrow's paper could say, he went to the Bible conference at Hillcrest last night, came home, died suddenly. He worked at a certain place. Certain funeral home will hold arrangements. He'll be buried in a certain cemetery. That's what the world says when you look at me. It doesn't matter what the world says. What does heaven say? And in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments. Hades hell. And he saw Lazarus over there walking around in hell, had it made, and now he's separated. And one day these days there's going to be a great judgment and God's going to reach down with one hand to where that rich man's soul is in that fire and reach down in the other hand and get his body out of the grave and bring them together and soul and body cast them into the lake of fire. You say, preacher, why is he going to do that? I'm going to tell you why he's going to do that. You wanted to satisfy this body. You wouldn't give up your liquor and get saved. You wouldn't give up your salacious literature and get saved. You wouldn't give up your sexual sin and get saved. You know the only difference between me and you? 
I've got a blood disease. I've got a heart problem. But if I die before Jesus comes, he's going to get my soul. He's going to have that up in glory, and my body's going to come out of the grave. But the body that I come out of the grave, because my soul is saved, my body will be saved, and it'll have no more blood trouble, it'll have no more heart problem, and I'll be free of pain forever and ever and ever because my soul is saved, my body will be saved. But if your soul is not saved, your body won't be saved. And you'll have sexual desires, ungodly desires for all eternity and no way to satisfy them. And a thirst for liquor, no way to satisfy them. And then you'll be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said, fear not him that is able to destroy the body. Fear him that is able to cast both body and soul into the lake of fire. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye offends thee, pluck it out. It is better to go into heaven with one of your members is to go into hell with all of them. I talked to a teenage girl one time. She said, if I get saved, my friends won't have anything to do with me. I said, darling, it'd be better for you that you never had another friend and lived on a desert island the rest of your life as to die and go to hell. I had a businessman say to me one time, if I get saved, I'll have to give up my liquor business. If I do that, I'll go bankrupt. I said, it'd be better for you to suffer the embarrassment of bankruptcy as to die and go to hell. And then one day you're going to stand before God. I'm going to close with this. I love J. Harold Smith. Did you ever know him, Rick? J. Harold Smith was a friend of mine. One day I sat down with him in his office. I said, Dr. Smith, have you ever seen an evidence of the reality of hell outside of the Word of God? He said, yes. In Fort Smith, Arkansas, when I was pastor there, there was a man that came to the church regularly. A good man. But I couldn't get him saved. Somebody in the church had done him wrong. And I want to say to every person in this building, if you're sitting there and you're not saved, and it's because some old sorry church member did you wrong, or if you're sitting there and you're not saved because some old preacher let you down, I got news for you. No preacher ever died for you, and no church member ever died for you. Only Jesus died for you, and he never let you down. He said, one night, as the man came out of the church, I put my arm around him, and I said, sir, I would to God you'd get saved. He said, preacher, you almost got me. Went home that night. About 1 o'clock in the morning, Dr. Smith got a telephone call from a neighbor, frantically, yelling into the phone, Dr. Smith, get over here to my neighbor's house. I hear screaming over there. He went racing over there, got out of the car. He could hear screaming, but couldn't understand what was said. Knocked on the door. He could hear screaming. Couldn't understand what was said. Opened the door a little bit. He could hear screaming from us. Said, man, get it out. If you don't get it out, I'm going to die. Get it out. He went racing up the stairs. Man, get it out. I'm dying. Please get it out. He got upstairs. And the man that was doing the screaming was the man that he had tried to bring to the Lord that night at church only a few hours before. And he was lying on his bed, back on an old-fashioned bedstead. The family doctor was looking over him. 
And he was screaming into that doctor's face, it's right here, can't you see it? J. Harold Smith had studied for medicine but never practiced it. And the doctor knew that. He saw Dr. Smith, he said, Brother Smith, this man is complaining of a horrible problem, but I've checked him out. He doesn't have a broken rib. He's not had a heart attack. I can't tell what's wrong with him. Will you check him? Dr. Smith said, when I leaned over him, the man seemed to have relief when he saw it was me. He said, Pastor, Pastor, you know what it is, Pastor. You know what it is. Help me, Pastor, help me. The pastor turned around and said, Doctor, this man's not had a heart attack. He's got sin in his heart. About that time, the blood drained from that poor wretch's face. He looked out a window, floor to ceiling. He said, Pastor, you see him? He's down there with a chain. He's coming to take me to hell. Pastor, Pastor, you got to do something. Pastor, I can hear him dragging that chain up the stairs. Pastor, he's at the foot of the bed. Pastor, he's about to chain my feet together. And those in the room say that his feet went together as though they were being chained. Pastor, he's about to chain my hands together. Suddenly his hands went aside as though they'd been say, chained. Pastor, he's about to gag me, do something. Suddenly, he didn't say a word. The doctor came over and put a stethoscope on him. He said, Dr. Smith, he's dead. And I've never seen anything like this. He's got instant rigor mortis. Rigor mortis is a stiffening of the body, but never instantly. And Dr. Smith said, I looked at him and said, that's not rigor mortis. You've just seen a man chained and bound for hell. The next day, the undertaker came, he said. Never want to see that again, he said. When I picked his body up off that mattress, he was so terrified, he had burrowed his head into that headboard so much that when we lifted his body up, three or four strands of hair were left sticking in that headboard. You say, preachers, anything in the Bible about that? Yeah. Jesus talks about the master of the feast, and the master of the feast said, You there! What are you doing here without a wedding garment on? They hear people talking about the rich man in his purple and the beggar in his right. That's not so. Only one garment, a white robe of righteousness, and you'll either wear that or be naked. I can't tell who's saved tonight and who's not. But God will know. And you'll be naked at the judgment. And he said, I said to you, what are you doing here without a wedding garment? And the Bible says they were silent. Now you can give me a lot of excuses for not getting saved but you won't at the judgment. And the most awful verse in the Bible, God said, take this man, bind him hand and foot, and cast him out of the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you can imagine if that's you, you're naked, and the angels come, and they begin to chain your feet, just like Dr. Smith said, and chain your hands, and you begin to cry and whimper, oh God, oh God, Jesus, I see you there. Jesus, I meant to serve you. Jesus, don't let them do this. Jesus! Listen, you either get saved now or you're lost forever. They take you to a great abyss. Fire and smoke coming up and all you can hear is screams and they throw you and you dumble head over heels, head over heels. You're going to be there forever. I hear people talking about folks walking around in hell. I dare anybody in this building to show me where the chains are unlocked or broken. You're going to be chained and lying in hell forever. You want to know the worst thing about it? and I'll be done. One more verse. Would you turn with me to Job 24, and I'll be done when we look at this. Job chapter 24, and verse 19. 
I'll be done when we look at it. You need to see this. This is something that frightens my soul. Job 24 and verse 19. Drought and heat consume the snow water, so doth the grave those which have sinned. The wounds shall forget him. How many women here have had the experience of having a baby in your womb? Raise your hand. Could you ever forget it? Could you ever forget it? The Bible says the womb's going to forget you. He shall no more be remembered. Well, how can that mother forget him? Preacher, take that back. My mother will never forget me. Yes, she will. You get into this world by being born physically. You get into the next world by being born spiritually. My wife and I have two children, Rick. We never miss the third one. You know why? Never born. You have a mother in heaven has four children on earth. Three are saved. She'll never miss that fourth one. He was never born up there. You'll never be remembered. Your husband will never think another thought about you. Your mom, your dad will never give you another thought. That preacher that keeps bothering you, he'll never say another word to you. You're going to be in hell forever and ever 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 and ever. How long is forever? I don't know. I've used this illustration. If an eagle flew to the top of the Smoky Mountains and rubbed his wing against it once every 10,000 years, once every 10,000 years, by the time he had leveled it to a flat plane, your time in eternity would just be beginning. I walked out of a revival several years ago, and there was a woman sitting there that said, I should have gotten saved tonight. I drove home and I came back to tell you what's happened to me. I don't care any longer whether I go to heaven or hell. You know what I think happened? That night she committed the unpardonable sin. And the Spirit of God has left her. And she may live another 25 or 30 years, but she's as bound to hell as though she were already there. I've been burdened about this. This is not the kind of service sermon you preach, Pastor, at a Bible conference. You say, why everybody here is saved. I'm an evangelist. Rick is an evangelist. I don't believe we'd be here if everybody in this place was saved.